He's just an average Joe who got the Supreme Court to change a 50-year-old bad precedent on religious freedom. Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. As we wind up 2023, we have a very special opportunity for you. If you've been thinking about supporting our work here at First Liberty Institute, partnering with us in the work that we do, we currently have a $600,000 matching grant, which means for every dollar you give, it'll be matched by another dollar, all the way up to $600,000. So if that's the kind of thing that, that appeals to you when, you when you make your charitable donations, this is a great time to do that. It's in effect through the end of the calendar year. So uh, just go to the website and click on the big red give button up at the top of the page. Our good friend Joe Kennedy has a new book out. I've got a copy right here. And uh, we're going to get him to share some of the stories from it. Hi, Joe. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to see you again, my friend. It's good to see your face. I always love uh, the time that we get to spend together. It's good to hang out with you. First, uh, before we get to the stories from the book, just catch us up a bit. Uh, September 1st, you were taking a knee on the 50-yard line. You put a final exclamation point on your Supreme Court victory after a Bremerton Knights victory. I should mention the team won that night. Describe what that moment was like for you when you went out there. Yeah, it was, it was so weird because we've been fighting for so long and you never realized that we were, we were ever going to get there. You know, eight years is just a ridiculous amount of time. And I was so nervous about actually going to do that one part. I thought there would be protesters. I didn't know what to expect. And God made it absolutely perfect. The game was so good that everybody forgot about me and it just did, turned out to be the perfect evening. Everybody watched a great football game, and everybody forgot about me, and I got to go out there and just take a knee, and I had a moment to thank God. So it was what I've always done. So I, it was totally restored. It was just perfect. I had the uh, the privilege of being on the, on the visitor's side at the top of the bleachers uh, after the game. And honestly, because I've been following your case for years and years, and, and I was just there to get the photo, and I thought, okay, everything's framed up, everything. But when your knee hit the turf, I'll confess, I teared up a little bit because there's such history that led up to that simple moment. And here's, here's what got me the most. It was perfectly unremarkable, as it should be. It should not be a big deal for a coach after a game to take a knee, right? Yeah, that's what it was all about. Only two things I ever asked for was to be a coach and be able to pray after a game. And that's all it was. Something so simple as that. And nobody got hurt. Nobody... Caught on fire. Everything was just absolutely perfect, and we went about our business. And it demonstrates what the founders had in mind for that little First Amendment thing that they wrote a long time ago. <laughs> hey, I, I read through your book, and, and I'll confess, okay, it's, it's true confessions time. Often when I interview authors, it's weird talking to you as an author, but there you are. Um, I'll skim through the book, and, you know, there are ways to get through a book rather quickly. I read every page of your book, okay? I, I really, truly I finished it up this morning. It was... And I've, I know quite a few of your stories, but it was hard for me to get through the first chapters of the book because your childhood was just one heartbreak after another. Tell us what it was like to be young Joe Kennedy growing up in the Bremerton area. Yeah, well, you know, I'd like to say that uh, I was a tough kid and everything was fine, you know, trying to play a tough guy role. But it, it was it was pretty bad. And I, I was in dark places. It was it was rough being you know, in and out of group homes and foster homes, uh, boys' homes, sometimes even living on the streets. And 
it, it was a it was a bad time in my life, but it was the great thing about it. Now you know hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I'm looking at it now, and I see God's fingerprints that He's been prepping me my whole entire life. He's been there the whole entire time prepping me just for you know such a time as this. I, I you were the kid that my parents would have told me not to hang out with you. Because, you know, I was the church kid, and, you know, I was at church camp every summer and vacation Bible school and all that. And, and I know as you were sharing your story, as all of this was going through the courts, you'd run into reporters, and their first presumption was, oh, it's just another religious nut job. It doesn't take long hanging out with you to realize that's not who you are. Yeah, yeah, far from it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a work in progress, for sure. I didn't even find my faith until after I got out of the Marine Corps. I was the biggest heathen in the world, and I'm still trying to make up for everything that I did as a kid, because I, like you said, you didn't want to hang out with me. Dennis Menace and Eddie Haskell, and you roll all those together, they didn't have nothing on me. I I saw a chapter in your book, you talk about an ugly tree, not there's a country phrase about you know he fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down this is not that ugly tree (laughs) but there's some truth to that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's talk about the ugly tree that you titled a chapter after in your book Uh, where were you who was beside you and what impact did it have on you yeah uh, so i was at a boy's home and that was a really tough place for me because i was basically sent away from um my folks they 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 betrayed everything that I thought what a parent should do, and they sent me to this boys' home. And I was fighting everything there, and I just couldn't understand why, you know, this God that I've been hearing about would put anybody through this. And the, re- the reverend that was working there comes by and wraps me on the head and takes me out there, and he shows me the tree out there. And it was a defining moment in my life that. You know, even though something is, is scarred up and ugly, it, it it shows the the you know the scars of the battles it's been through, and it's the toughest thing around. And that has stuck with me for so long. And I even use that um, that story with my football players when they go through these really terrible things. Their parents, you know, break up, or well, they have death in the family, and they they don't know where to turn to. And I can only speak from experience where. Somebody sat me down and explained it that well. It just touched my heart, and it's always been with me. So basically, it's a tree all by itself on the hillside. It's not the most attractive tree, but it is stalwart and tough, and it's going to be there for years to come, right? Absolutely. I just was there uh, last year. So I was in the boys' home, what, 30, 40 years ago? And I was there last uh, two weeks ago, and it's still there. And you mentioned a few chapters later in the book, you referenced this just now, that you, you got to point to that same tree. You took a young player who was going through a tough time, and you walked him out to that spot and said, see that tree up there? Literally in person, the same tree. Yeah, so see, I mean, it, it, it was a, a defining moment in his life. He was in a really dark, dark place. And I, it's amazing how God could just turn everything around and bring that full circle where he can make things right with everyone. 
I, I see over your shoulder there, USMC. I always think of you not just as a coach, but as a Marine. And, and I, I know that you're a Marine. I know that you served in Kuwait during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. But reading your book was the first time that I've heard about your experiences there as a Marine. Uh, historically, as, those of us who have a certain age or older, we remember the video of the oil wells on fire uh, in the middle of that war. But you got to feel the earth vibrating from that. Describe what that was like what did it feel like what did it smell like what was it like yeah and, and only thing i can say and this is in no way um in, in a cuss word but in the literal form it looked like the, the gates of hell that's what i would ex- expect hell to look like because you see these flames that are shooting up 50 70 100 feet in the air just rumbling and smoke pouring out of it right in the middle of the day it just turned completely black out there it was so dark and it was raining oil on us i mean it was it was the craziest thing you could ever imagine and that the power and the force that was going on around you with the chaos of shooting it was quite an experience and, and you talk about the fact that you would shoot and then you'd advance, and then you'd dig in again, and then you'd do some more shooting, advancing all the way to Kuwait City. Yeah, I was with the artillery unit with Task Force Ripper, and that's what we did. Uh, shoot, move, and communicate. And we did that all the way up to Kuwait City from, you know, right from the border. So you're, you're advancing toward Kuwait City, and there's one day that really stood out in, in your story in the book, and that's the day that you got hit in the head by a tailgate, of all things. Tell us what happened, and, and then we'll get to the rest of the story, okay? Yeah, so um, I was part of the mechanics team, the jump team, and uh, long story short, uh, my buddy was holding the tailgate with me. The trailer started rolling, and he let go of everything, and the tailgate slammed my head between the bumper and and the tailgate itself. I felt like one of those cartoon characters where your eyeballs pop out of your head. That had to hurt. I had a major, major concussion. I, I couldn't stand up. I was, you know, throwing up everywhere, and everybody thought it was funny because I couldn't stand up straight, and I just kept falling over. So, yeah, it was a rough night. And, and then... You came as, and shortly after that, you came as close as any human being can come to being blown to smithereens by a mortar. Can you set that up yeah. for us and tell us what happened? Yeah, so uh, I was sitting on the outside of the hole trying to comprehend what was going on around me. Uh, we had our fighting holes there, and my buddy was sitting down in the bottom of it trying to coax me in, and I just couldn't process of what i was doing and then all of a sudden his face completely lights up like this big sun flare right behind me and i knew something was happening behind me and he had the face of oh my goodness and i just you know ducked down and as best i could and then the impact hits you and it just blew me right onto him knocked me out cold and wow woke up and yeah he's all patting me down and i jumped up and like man that was better than splash mountain in disneyland and he was like you're an idiot get down so i was in him was not in my right frame of mind well i'm glad you got through all that safely you said he was checking to make sure you still had all your arms attached i mean it was that close yeah. that's that's god for you how did all those experiences prepare you for the legal fight that you went through for religious freedom oh it, it, i mean even from the when I was stolen in the womb, he, he's been prepping me for this. And, you know, going through combat and, and relying on other people, like I had to rely on First Liberty, I, I put my all my faith and trust, all 
all the eggs were in your guys's basket and i had to walk that that trust with you guys and and with god and it, it just everything has been preparing for that battle and it's has you know it set me on that path and got me through it all you really make that theme that thread clear in your book that through your whole life god has been working directing even in the hard times even in the worst of times that that he's watching over you he's got a plan for you and there's still more in the future and I, that is just and I, I know enough of your story that i'm i'm just deeply convinced that you're absolutely right about that yeah he He's got a weird sense of humor, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Uh, my colleague Hiram Sasser, um, who many people know is bigger than life, a, a, a barrel-chested guy, uh, served you know, the, with the Army along the way, uh, and, and, and just looks like he could take you out, I mean, any second. In your book, you talk about the first conversation you had with him. He's on the phone, and he says, is this Joe Kennedy? And you're like, yeah. And he says, before we get started, I just have one question. Are you one of those religious nut jobs? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> that was not what you expected. Laughing. No, not at all. I, I, I was hanging up on everybody. So I, I was so overwhelmed at that time. I didn't want to talk to a lawyer. I didn't know anything about lawyers, but there was something about that that just put my mind at ease. And I knew I was with the right company just from the moment he said that. And I, I just had to laugh because I am so far from. A religious guy. I was like, if you're looking for that, you got the wrong guy, man. That's not me. <laughs> but that's not what he was looking for. I mean, he he knew, and he uh, tell us about that first conversation. What did it go like, and how did it set up everything that happened after? Because a lot of what happened at the Supreme Court really began in that first conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it, it was almost as I was in a job interview, and I I had no idea if he was going to take the case or not. And I, I I felt like he was trying to set me up for something, like trying to get me to say that I was inviting kids and that I was pressuring kids. And I, I was basically arguing with him. And I'm like, no, dude, I, I never did that. And I'm arguing with this lawyer over this, and I was getting annoyed at him. Yeah. He's trying to set me up on this. And I just stood firm and said, dude, no, I just wanted to pray by myself and just continue on coaching. That was it. And, man, it was absolutely perfect that he goes, all right, you passed. That's what I needed to hear. You have a perfect case. And we took it all the way. And he was right. I mean, I, Hiram, if nothing else, I mean, he has an insight into legal cases that's that's practically miraculous, the way that he can just see through it all and get clarity with it. And he was just absolutely spot on. One, one aspect of that conversation, you're talking about whether you invited kids. You said then, and it got quoted to the Supreme Court, that your your entire commitment was to pray on the 50 by yourself that's all you ever committed to but when kids came up and said can we join you you never told them no you told them you can do whatever you want to and uh, paul clement even quoted that to the supreme court justices it's a free country you can do whatever you want which legally is perfectly the exactly right answer and good on you i think it was god's direction in your life that all of that came together in that way to set this up for victory yeah, and I was uh, really just following the school district's policy, which is the same for all of Washington state. And I agree with it. Do not encourage or discourage kids in prayer. I followed that line to the T because you should never have to force somebody to pray. If you do that, you're just as long as 
as if you told them that they, you know, they can't pray. So, yeah. I, uh, there's a final story in the book. At 47 years old, you were adopted. Tell us that story. It's a beautiful thing. That's that is, and I'll I'll be honest. I actually I teared up when I read that chapter. Okay, I have a soft spot in my heart for adoption. When it comes to that, yeah, because I have a soft spot in my heart for adoption. When I read that story, it moved me. So uh, tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, because you know all the coincidences in life. Uh, God put all those together. Uh, so I was given up at birth uh, unwanted pregnancy, and 47 years later, they, Washington State uh, opened uh, their policies or opened uh, where you could petition the court to, you know, find out who your birth family was. I did it, gave it to my son, found out that my mom, my birth mom lives just the next town over. Huh. We finally meet, and not only did she just live in the next town over. She was the one that actually worked in the same area that I did. And she at the, was the, one at the naval station. In and, yeah, at the naval station and gave me my security pass and everything. So, <laughs> and then she, uh, her and, and her husband, they, they asked if they could, you know, adopt me. So here I am, 47 years old, being readopted by my biological family, which is. I, I think it's kind of cool. <laughs> I, I, I've worked with uh, special needs adoption kids along the way in years past. And, and one of the things that I remember from that is they would say that you're never too old to need a mom and a dad. That it's significant to us throughout a lifetime that we have someone that we could connect with at that level. And even at 47 years old, there you are finding your mom again. Yeah, it, it, it's it's hard getting used to because I never had that growing up. So it, it's a learning curve for me to spend holidays and stuff like that. But there, there's something cool about hugging your mom and, and, you know, seeing that warm, friendly face when you walk in the door. That's God's blessing to you. That's an awesome story. You've been through it all. What is your encouragement to others who are contemplating standing up for their rights under the Constitution when it comes to religious freedom? What would you say to them? Uh, I, I would say, you know, being, being an American and a Christian or anybody of any kind of faith, it, it's not a spectator sport anymore. You have to be involved. You've got to get off your butts and you've got to get involved. And it's some, so simple to do. Every American do it. It's just stand up and do what's right. It's so simple. Now, it might take a while and it might be the hardest thing you ever have to do, but it's as simple as standing up. And I would be honored to, with just the same as First Liberty to stand up and, and right beside you and fight with you. I will be beside anybody that wants to fight for their liberties because we're, we're losing them daily and we need warriors to get up and, and be proud of Americans. You, you have a, a viewpoint on this that... that a very limited number of people I have, and that is you've worked with First Liberty over years on a case like this, and it's a slog. I mean, it, there, there's a price to be paid. We don't hide that. I mean, we're, we're honest about it. What is it like working with First Liberty through that process over years and years? Describe it from your point of view. Well, you know, uh, they're kind of quirky, the lawyer group. I, I mean, you guys are the great, oh, the whole entire sports staff I just love instantly. But the lawyers, you know, they, they, they're an acquired taste, and it took a while <laughs> for them to adjust to me. Yeah. And I, I love them all dearly. And once we realized that they had a job to do and they got to know me, I, I call them friends. And 
they, I wasn't just a client. I, they are my lifelong friends. And I will, man, I'll give a kidney to any one of them. I, I love you guys. Yeah, and Joe, we have a, the same heartfelt love for you, and I, I count it an honor to count you as a friend, and I always enjoy the time that we get to spend together. It's always a blessing to me to get to hang out with you. Anything else you want to share before I let you go? Ah, I miss you guys. We need to get together, and uh, <laughs> good luck with your cases, man, and uh, hopefully you'll get somebody on the West Coast. That's what I'm praying for, that you guys open an office there in the dark zone. <laughs> we will keep an eye out. Joe Kennedy, uh, the book is called Average Joe, but Joe, you are anything but average. Thank you for making time for us today. It's an honor to get to talk to you. It's good to see you, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Joe Kennedy will never get a bill from us. That is part of how we work as a nonprofit legal organization that exclusively works on religious freedom cases. His legal battle would have literally cost millions of dollars in the time that attorneys spent on it pro bono over the years. We're able to press forward with these precedent-setting cases because of people like you who care about religious freedom as much as we do. Right now we have a $600,000 matching grant. So for every dollar that you donate from now through the end of 2023, it'll be matched dollar for dollar up to $600,000. So this is a great time to give. If that, if that moves you, if this is something, you, if these are outcomes you want to see in the real world, uh, just go to our website and look for the big red give button up at the top of the page. First Liberty is fighting for what matters most.